Okay, well, this morning we are continuing our series through the book of Luke, and we are coming to an entirely sort of a new section in the next few weeks. We're going to be making a major transition in the book of Luke, but I kind of wanted to uh, pause for a moment even here at the beginning and tell you a little bit of a story about how God's been working through these texts of Luke that we've been doing. I preached a couple months ago out of the Luke chapter 17, and we were talking about dependence on God, about Jesus' disciples who came to him and said, increase our faith, and Jesus says to them, you need to be 100% dependent on me. So a few weeks after I preached that sermon, I was on a, a, a trip in Wisconsin hanging out with a few friends I went to school with that are also pastors. We were kind of doing a retreat thing. And uh, while I was there, I went jogging in the morning, found this little chapel out in the middle of the woods, and I sat down to pray for a little bit. And I said, God, okay, I want this to be part of my life. I can't just say this, okay? Teach me to be dependent on you in everything. Okay, let me just say, that's a dangerous thing to pray. So later that afternoon... We had a tea time to play some golf, you know, part of our recreation that we were doing. And uh, if you've ever golfed and using a golf cart, you sort of take your golf bag and you sort of strap it onto the back of a golf cart. And so I was doing that, and I was kind of leaning down on the back of my golf cart, getting something out of the side pocket, and I see this flash out of the corner of my eye, and all of a sudden, boom, this golf cart smashes into me and pins me between the two golf carts. It was shocking, to say the least. I looked down... This golf cart sort of bounced off of me. It had gone around the corner being towed by another golf cart, and the hitch came undone, and it went careening with no driver and slammed into me at full speed. I looked down, expecting my legs to be completely mangled, okay? And I looked down, and they looked normal. They felt normal. I could stand on them. My friends who watched this happen, they thought, man, we're calling 911. He's going to have to get airlifted. We're in the middle of nowhere, okay, in Wisconsin. We're going to have to get airlifted to Milwaukee, flown back home, you know, crutches, the whole, you know, like surgery, everything. And they sat me down, started feeling my leg, and they said, does this hurt? Does this hurt? Does this hurt? And I said, no, not really. It doesn't hurt at all. And they thought I was just in shock, like pretending, you know, it doesn't hurt or anything. I just ended up with a couple bruises on my leg after this whole incident played the entire round of golf. They gave me a free round. I played the next day again for free. <laughs> and as we were playing, okay, we were all sort of in shock from this whole incident. It's just adrenaline pumping because we could not believe that this happened. We sort of examined the way that the carts hit me. There's this metal bumper and then the big tire, and there's this little gap about four inches wide that's just plastic. That's the part that hit my leg and pinned me between the two carts. One inch to either side, Done. And I'm looking at this. This event happened four days or five days before we were going to go to summer camp with the youth. And I was going to lead 20 kids going to a summer camp for the first time, and I could have been easily in a cast and on crutches. And I sat there and thought, just couldn't help but reflect, man, you got to be careful what you pray for. Because <laughs> God has basically got my attention and said, you want to be dependent on me? Well, I'm going to show you how I'm watching over you. So it could have been a lot worse, and he could have also taught me dependence by having me be on crutches for eight weeks or something like that, but he chose not to. Anyway, I wanted to share that because that's how some, we can see how these texts in Luke, they're so powerful. The Word of God is living and active, and it makes a difference when you come to God's Word, you apply it in prayer, and you can see God transforming your life. So as we go through the book of Luke now, we're in a new section, so let's sort of transition now. We're, uh, we've been walking through for a number of weeks through Luke's travel narratives is kind of what it's called. Jesus is walking towards Jerusalem for his final time going into the city and where he will be crucified. 
And now we're getting to sort of the final event, the last stage of his journey as he's entering the city. We're going to be looking at Luke 19. If you can open up your Bibles, join me in Luke 19. We're going to start at verse 28. And if you need a Bible, raise your hand and we will pass one to you. We've got plenty in the back. And if you don't own a Bible, if you want to keep this one, this is, this is yours to keep. We're going to be on page 751 in those Bibles that we hand out. Page 751. It's up there on the screen. So today we're going to be looking at this text in Luke 19, and we're going to look at Jesus' entry into the city of Jerusalem, this last stage of his journey. And we're going to think through what this passage means for us, okay? So Luke 19, starting in verse 28. This is what the Word of God says. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, this is Jesus, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. To those who were sent away and found it, those, sorry, excuse me, so those who were sent away, those were sent away and found it just as they had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, all the way, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is the word of the Lord. So let me get the setting here for you. Jesus is in the city of Jericho. And Jericho is on the Jordan River Valley. So uh, it, is, it is on the other side of a mountain range from where Jerusalem sits. Now, if you want to picture this sort of in our terms, imagine where we are and pretend like this would be sort of the area where Jerusalem is in the East Bay. And then over the hills to the east of us are the cities, maybe where Bethany and Bethphage would be, would be somewhere like Arinda or Moraga or something like that. And Jericho would be even farther, like maybe way out to like Brentwood or something like that. So between those cities and the city of Jerusalem is this mountain range. And in order to go up to Jerusalem, you literally have to scale up the mountains and you get to a point where there's these final couple hills to get to the city. And that's where the city of Bethany is. And this is where Jesus pauses in his travel to Jerusalem. And he asks for this colt to ride. Now, now that we've got that setting... The way that we're going to look at this passage is by looking at two Old Testament quotations or allusions that are in this text. And the reason why we're doing this is because we can read through this narrative of what Jesus does and look at it on the surface, but there is so much going on 
that is connected to what's rooted in the Old Testament in this passage, and it illuminates all of the meaning. Jesus is very purposeful in what he does for a reason, okay? So we're going to look at these two different references from the Old Testament. First one that we're going to look at is in verses 29 to 35. So take a look back at the text there. Verses 29 to 35. We've already done the setting. You know, verse 28 talks about him going up to Jerusalem. So when he drew near these two cities, he came near the Mount of Olives, which is this mountain or this hill directly to the east of the city of Jerusalem. He tells his disciples to go get this colt and bring it to him. Now there's a very specific reason why he asked for this. And what we're going to find is that in Zechariah chapter 9, we see exactly why. Now, we're going to spend a few minutes in it. So if you want to flip to Zechariah chapter 9, it's on page 678 in the Bible that we handed out. But Zechariah chapter 9, starting in verse 9, we're going to look at a few verses that really illuminate this, this, this uh, thing that's happening with Jesus. It's going to be on the screen as well. Um, now, before I read it, let me just say this about how we look at Old Testament texts, how we look at passages from the Old Testament. When a New Testament author quotes or alludes to an Old Testament passage, he's not just intending us to look at one verse and take that verse out of its context and try and ascribe some meaning to it. They want us to look at the entire context of what's going on in that Old Testament passage. So they may quote one verse or one line, but we need to look at all of the context of what's going on, place it in its part of God's salvation history. So in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 to 10, this is what the text says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Okay, there's a couple really important themes I want to pull out of this. We're going to sort of number them as we go through it. You can already see a basic connection there. Jesus asked for a colt. This is talking about the same thing. But what, what we see is that Jesus asking for this colt, he's trying to latch on to all of the stuff that Zechariah is talking about. So there's four different things. First is that this king deserves a party. Look at what our text in, in Luke 19 says again. You don't have to flip back if you want to keep your finger in Zechariah 9. But it says that the people were basically creating a parade for him. They were singing. They were praising God. They threw him a huge party. Okay, look, when you have a king come, you have, or royalty, you've got to throw him the biggest party you can. I mean, if the Queen of England were going to come to your house, you can't just throw a frozen pizza in the oven, okay? You have got to throw the biggest party you can possibly imagine. And that's what these people are doing. You see, this maybe even helps us to, to ask a question about our own hearts. Do we throw the biggest parties for Jesus? Or the biggest parties you go to for something else, Super Bowl or something, whatever it is. Um, do we throw the biggest parties for Jesus? Do we actually feel like celebrating because of what Jesus did for us? These people throw Jesus a party because he deserves it. You see in Zechariah chapter 9, in that verse, verse 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, shout aloud. You're basically saying, throw a party for him. Okay, number two. This, this king that is talked about in Zechariah, he is righteous and has salvation. Another translation you might have says that he is just. So righteous and just, it means that he's, he's going to do right. He's going to make things right. And he has salvation. He is the savior. He's the one who saves. 
Okay? Number three, he's humble. My kind of three and four sort of connect together, so they'll overlap a little bit. He is humble. He's not a, a, a proud king, an arrogant or domineering king. He doesn't come, this king in Zechariah does not come to conquer by a show of strength, but he models a life of servanthood. Okay? He rides the colt of a donkey. Now, for us, when we think about a donkey, we think about sort of a dumb animal. It's just a beast of burden. It just does what it's told. There's no, like, dignity involved with a donkey, right? Okay? In Jesus' day and the generations before him, a donkey was actually the preferred method of transportation for a king or a priest who was coming in peace to a city. Now, the difference is, if you're going to be riding a horse, a horse is a war animal. If you ride a horse into a city, it means I'm coming for battle. The people knew that. So Jesus specifically chooses to ride the colt of a donkey because he knows that that brings a message of peace. There's no accident in what he's doing. You see, if you're going to ride a a, a horse in, uh, it would be the symbol of war. And we actually look, if you want to just sort of jump all the way to the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 19, when Jesus comes back, it says he's riding a horse this time. Because he's coming and he's ready to make things right. He's ready for judgment. That's what the text is saying. Okay. We can't miss this fact that Jesus purposefully asks for this colt because it's a symbol. And it's a connection to Zechariah. Okay. Number four, he brings peace. Now, you see that verse 10 of this chapter in Zechariah that says that he gets rid of these weapons of war. He gets rid of chariots. He abolishes the, the battle bow and the war horses from God's people. He's essentially saying he brings a message of peace. Now, the point in saying all of this and pointing back to this passage is that Jesus is making a deliberate statement by riding this colt into Jerusalem. He's saying, remember that Messiah, that guy that they talked about 600 years ago that the prophets wrote about? The guy who's full of justice, who is peaceful, who is coming in humility and a message of peace. That's me. I'm talking about that guy. That's me. Okay. Let's dig a little bit deeper here with the the passage in Luke 19. If you want to flip back, if you're over in Zechariah, Luke chapter 19, we're going to look at at the sort of the second Old Testament quotation or allusion that helps to illuminate what Jesus is doing. And it's in verses 36 to 38. Okay, this second reference, we're going to see the people are basically throwing him a party like we talked about. Verse 36, it says, As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, okay, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. And they said this, verse 38, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They're making a direct quotation of Psalm 118. Okay, and before we take a look at it, it's no accident that these people come out of the city to to come and see Jesus. It was normal practice in that day that when a king comes to a city, the people actually get up, grab their family members and their friends, and they all go outside of the city gate, and they basically make a parade for the king to come into the city. So this is normal practice across the first century. So they set up this parade, they throw a party, and they start quoting Psalm 118. And 118, verse 26, it says this. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. I mean, it's a direct quotation. Now, remember what we have to do with looking at these Old Testament passages, though. You can't just look at that one verse. You've got to look at the whole context. So here on the screen, we're going to see, we go back even to like verse 19 is a good spot to start. Verses 19 to 22, it says this about this person that's coming to represent God's salvation. Psalm 118 is essentially a psalm about God taking the initiative to save his people. And it says this, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, the righteous shall enter through it. So it's talking about the way of salvation. I thank you that you have become my salvation. And then it narrows in on this thing. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, why am I bringing up this part of the psalm? I think Jesus and this quotation that Luke has in Luke 19 points to this whole context. Now, what does this last line mean? The stone the builders has rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, the Bible is a unity, and the New Testament helps illuminate some of these things from the Old Testament we have trouble understanding. If we skip ahead in part of the New Testament, Peter writes in 1 Peter, Chapter 2, if you just want to write down the reference, I'm going to show it to you on the screen, but it's something that would be worth reading later on. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4, he says this about, Peter talks about the same psalm, and he refers to Jesus as the stone mentioned in that psalm. And he says this, As you come to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You skip a verse, it says, for it stands in scripture. Now he's quoting. Behold, I lay, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, talking about Jesus, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, here's our text. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He relates this directly to who Jesus is. Now, okay, so Peter says that Jesus is the stone rejected by men. In the text in Luke 19, they're quoting from the same psalm. I hope you're seeing how this all weaves together. It's essentially making a statement, bold statement, that Jesus is this stumbling block, that he's a cornerstone that's set and is a stumbling block. He's rejected by men and becomes a stumbling block. And it says, to those who believe, Jesus is this, this stone that the builders rejected. Now, here's the point. Let me just get straight to the point here. I, I know we've gone through a number of different passages. Let's get to the point. We, peach, we, we preach a message of Christ crucified. And that message of peace with God through Jesus' death and resurrection is often a stumbling block. You see, it's the most beautiful and amazing message. It really is. But not everyone's going to accept it. You see, the message of a crucified king didn't make sense to people in the first century. To Jews, Jesus rides into Jerusalem, and, he, and there's these illusions. Maybe people didn't understand exactly what was going on, but he's going to his death, a king going in to his city to die. That didn't make sense. It didn't make sense to people then, and sometimes it doesn't make sense to people now, but this is the gospel. Jesus died in your place and in mine, and he offers peace. Okay, we're going to come back to that. 
Now, let's get back to Luke 19 here. I want to keep going on with the story. Now, the Pharisees have a big problem with this. Okay, verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. How can you let them worship you? You see, to them, it was blasphemy against God. It was treason against the Roman Empire that this king would come. And Jesus says something amazing. He says, I, will tell, I tell you if, you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. I'd like to see that. It's pretty amazing. Okay, here's where we get to the climax of the whole story here. Remember our geography of this? Imagine yourself in the Berkeley Hills, okay? If you've ever been up there, it's a beautiful view of the city. Beautiful view of the East Bay, and you can see San Francisco when it's clear. Usually in the morning is the best time to go when it's not foggy. And you can see the whole area here as you cross over the mountain. You get up on the top, and you look at the peak, and you can see it's just beautiful. Jesus, as he's riding this colt, comes over the crest of the mountain, of the Mount of Olives, and he sees the city of Jerusalem. And what does it say? Verse 41. It says, And he drew near and saw the city, and he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known this day the things that make for peace. He wept over the city. I mean, put yourself in the crowd for a moment. Imagine you're one of these worshipers. You're standing there singing the praises of God, quoting this psalm, and you look through, peer through a couple people. You know, you can't see Jesus quite, so you kind of look through a couple people's heads, you know, or you get on your tippy toes, and you look and you see Jesus, and he comes through the crowd riding on this donkey, and there are tears going down his cheeks, and he has his head in his hand, and he is weeping in the middle of all of this praise. Jesus weeps over the city. I think we need to pause a moment and think about, let this sink in. I think in order to maybe grapple with this question of why Jesus is weeping, maybe looking at, trying to understand that, I think we need to think through some of the implications of this whole event. Okay? We've looked at the background of it. We've sort of given the explanation. Jesus is tapping into something in the prophets and in the Psalms that just illuminates who he's all about that he really is the king and he's bringing a message of peace. But we need, to, we need to grapple with the implications of that in order to understand why he's weeping. So I have, you know, th- I have three kind of questions I think we need to grapple with. Okay? If you're kind of a note taker, these would be great spots to take some notes here. Three questions that this text forces us to grapple with. The first one is this. Do you really worship Jesus as king? Do you really worship Jesus as king? And if you sort of skim back through this passage in verses 39 kind of to 40, you look at what the people are doing. They're laying their cloaks on the ground. They're throwing a parade for this guy. They bring him into the city like you would a king who comes in peace. But I, I get the sense that there's something, there's something amiss. There's something wrong here. These people, these exact same people, they're so easily suited to worship Jesus and treat him as king in this moment. And these very same people, a week later, say, crucify him. You see, when it, was, when it suited them to have Jesus be their king, 
They were all willing to praise him. They said, sure, let's do it. Let's throw him a big party. But when push comes to shove, when things got difficult, when things got a little hairy, when it really came to understanding what Jesus was all about, it suited them just as much just to let him die, just to kill him, just to crucify him. Hand him over to the Romans. Let them do what they want. So here's the question for you and me, okay? When you worship Jesus as king, are you doing so because it kind of works for you right now? When you say he's the king in your life, are you saying this because things are going pretty well? You see, we can't just have Jesus a la carte, okay? You can't just take and, and, and leave what you feel like you like about him and then things you don't like about him, you just kind of push it under the wayside or brush it under the rug. Because I can tell you what's going to happen when life comes crashing down on you when things get hard, when people are, are pressuring you, saying, you really, you really think Jesus is king? You'll, just, you'll, you'll brush him by the wayside as well. You'll say, sure, let him die. Let him die in my life. Let him die in my heart. All right, number two of the things we're going to grapple with here, questions. Number two is, are your eyes open to God's eternal purposes through Jesus? Are your eyes open? Look at verse 22, or excuse me, 42. Jesus says about the city of Jerusalem, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. They are hidden from your eyes. Jesus rides into Jerusalem in peace. We know this. He deliberately is fulfilling these things from Zechariah that we read. Okay, he's riding this donkey. We know he's coming and bringing a message of peace. And there's something deep down inside of all of us that longs for peace. Is there not? I don't know if you feel like this. I do. I feel it maybe every day. There's just something wrong in the world. There's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with relationships I have with people. I mean, I sit down at the end of the day, and all I long for is just real lasting peace. You know, what do I do? I flip on the TV, and that's supposed to be peace for my evening. You know what I mean? Maybe you find your peace or your solace in, in any number of things, in relationships you have, in, in, in family, in friends, in things like, I said, like entertainment. I mean, all those different things they're trying to substitute for really that peace that you're longing for deep down. We want peace from, from war. We want peace in our families, in our workplaces, in our own souls. But all of these things are just fallout from the fractured relationship we have with our creator that needs peace. Because that is the key and the core that precipitates all these other things that are messed up that we long for peace with. See, we desperately need peace between us and God. And Luke wants us to see this, okay? There's no accident of all the things that he's putting in this passage. Scripture is so beautiful, and it is so dynamic. And there's no accident that there's these Old Testament passages listed in here. Because Luke wants us to see that this peace that you long for, that you know you need, this peace is ultimately revealed and accomplished through Jesus. You see, we don't want to have this peace hidden from our eyes. And here is your chance to see that God has been pursuing you with a fierce love and with patient endurance. He has been pursuing you because he wants peace with you. He provided peace through Jesus' death and resurrection. Look at, look at what Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says. 
Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by faith that you come to God and he offers you peace through Jesus' death and his resurrection. His blood, his death where he died for you and for me offers peace between us and God. And it's a pathway forward to have peace in all areas of your life. It's an utter transformation. Okay? And you can do that today. You can have peace with God today. You can say, you can even pray today, maybe as we're doing communion, you can pray to God and say, I give up. I'm giving my life to you. I'm accepting forgiveness for my sins and reconciliation of my life to you through Jesus' death on my behalf. Maybe some of you who've done that need to be reminded of that today. That is by faith, it is through the gospel that peace has been made. And in areas of your life where there's turmoil, you can have peace through Jesus. Okay, the last, the final one is questions to grapple with from this text. Number three is, is this. Do you have the heart of Jesus? Jesus comes over this hill on the Mount of Olives. He sees the city of Jerusalem and he weeps. He weeps over the lost people of Jerusalem. He knows that they're going to reject him. He knows they will. Even though there's so many people praising him as king now, when push comes to shove, they reject him. You see, you can't read about this triumphal entry, Jesus coming in as the conqueror, or as, as the triumphant king, without seeing and understanding his weeping over the city. It helps us to see Jesus' heart. It's, it sort of reminds me of the prophet Jeremiah. Um, if you want to if you want to get a little bit more of a, an idea of Jesus' heart here, read about the prophet Jeremiah. 600 years before Jesus, he weeps over the city of Jerusalem because they are lost. And Jesus walks the same path as the prophet Jeremiah, weeping over the city of Jerusalem because he knows they're rejecting him. You see, Jerusalem was on a path of destruction. We kind of see how it plays out. Jesus even tells them, you're going to be destroyed. They're on a path of destruction. He tried to, you know, in Jesus' ministry, he's trying to get across to the people through his parables and his miracles that they were far from God's kingdom. They didn't understand it. He tried to tell them that they needed to come back to true dependence on God and live as members of the kingdom with transformed hearts. He tried to explain that faith has always been the way to accept God's grace, but the people were lost and on a path of destruction. So here's the question. Are you on a path of destruction? Think about that. It's a question this text is asking us. Are you on a path of destruction? Jesus weeps for you. He weeps for you. He cares that you are walking away from him. He loves you and wants you to come back to him in faith. Now, we can, we can also look at Jesus' weeping over the city, and this should make us grapple with how we look at our city, and how we look at our neighbors, and our family members, and our friends, the people we work with. Do we have the heart of Jesus? Um, my wife Sarah and I and our daughter, we, we just, some of you know the story, we, we just moved to San Francisco. 
we were living in Berkeley, and uh, we moved to San Francisco for a number of reasons. Some of it's um, reasons for Sarah's job and that kind of thing. Um, but we also see possibly some doors opening up for ministry in the city that might lead to church planting. So we're kind of exploring that at this point. But, so we've been living in the city for a month or so, and on Friday night we went to the Hardly Strictly Blue, Bluegrass Festival in Golden Gate Park. And we you know, brought Annabelle along in the stroller, and we're kind of dodging all these people with the stroller, like getting all people all mad at us, right? Um, we had some good food, enjoyed some good music, all that fun stuff. And you know, it's starting to get dark, so we decided to leave, walk home. And as we're leaving, there's this crowd, quite literally, of thousands of people. And as I'm walking away and I'm looking over this crowd, it just, I've been looking at this text all week, it just kept coming back to me, this image of Jesus weeping over the thousands of people in the city of Jerusalem. And I looked at this crowd of people and I said, who is weeping for these people? Who cares? Who is going to step out and, and stand up and care that these people are lost without Jesus? It has to be us. Jesus weeps for these people. We need to have the heart of Christ and look over the people who don't know him and weep because they don't know him. I had these, these feelings, and, you know, these feelings of sadness and grief looking over these people. You know, and I'm not trying to say I have it all figured out or I'm doing the right thing or whatever, but this is just, I feel like God is working on my heart in this way. Maybe a, a practical step there. Um, maybe a way that you could show the heart of Jesus is doing something like Count Me In we have on Saturday. Shameless plug. <laughs> it's a first step, right? It's a first step. You see, these people matter. Are, are, look, people in your family that don't know Jesus, your friends, people that you work with, people you cross on the street, somebody that's a cashier at the coffee shop you go to, the people you see at the grocery store every week when you go, do you have the heart of Christ for these people? I think about this coming year for, for us as a church. Um, we've been talking about being commissioned, sort of our vision for this year about being commissioned to God's work. When I think we need to ask ourselves as a church, are we going to take on the heart of Jesus for the people who don't know this message of peace that he brings? Are we going to be commissioned to go out and share with people with this heart of Jesus, the message of real, lasting, and true peace that comes through Christ? You see, taking on this heart, it's going to take sacrifice. It's going to break your heart often. It's going to be exciting. You're going to get rejected. It's, it's, an, it's, an, it's, an, it's a journey and a path to walk, of being commissioned. It's going to mean reorganizing priorities in life, all these different things. It means doing whatever it takes to help people meet Jesus. This is what we're all about. This is what we're all about. And, and this passage that we're looking at, this is what Luke wants us to grapple with. Do we really see Jesus as king? And if we do... Can we take on his heart and help other people see that he really offers this message of peace with God? Let's pray. Father God, we, um, we thank you. I, even the word thank you doesn't feel like enough. I don't know what to say, but 
your son, Jesus, coming and dying for us when we didn't deserve it, when we did nothing to earn it, it's just sheerly by your grace that you decided to pursue us and to save us. Lord God, we thank you. Help us to have your heart for people. Help us to do as you did and weep over those who don't know you. More than that, God, we just want to recognize Jesus is the king. Just let him be the king of our lives. Help us to grapple in our hearts with where he's not the king. We want to be ones who truly do worship Jesus as king, who don't turn our backs on him, but who worship Jesus as the true king. Lord God, we thank you. In Jesus' name.